ask you to listen carefully to these statements that would relate to the gospel. God loves you. God sent His Son, Jesus, for you. If you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. Salvation is only by grace. Those statements are good statements. But there's something missing from those statements. What's missing from God sent His Son Jesus for you. God loves you. If you believe in Jesus, you can be saved. Salvation is only by grace. If I'm talking about the gospel, and I use those statements, statements like them, and only those kinds of statements, what's missing? What's missing is any reference whatsoever to sin. Any reference whatsoever to death and the consequence of sin. Any reference whatsoever to the just judgment of God. Any reference whatsoever to things like wrath, wrath from God. And without those kinds of things, without talking about sin, without talking about the consequences of sin, and without therefore talking about the wrath of God, when we talk about the gospel, it's not really the gospel. It's not really the gospel. The gospel ends up being something other than the gospel when we never talk about judgment, we never talk about wrath, we don't talk about sin. Without the reality of sinners deserving the wrath of God, without the reality of sinners deserving the wrath of God, the cross of Christ, at best, doesn't make sense. Because after all, it is on the cross where Jesus experiences the wrath of God for sinners like us. So if we don't talk about sin, we don't talk about judgment, which is the just penalty for sin, we don't talk about wrath, the cross at best is confusing. And certainly the gospel ends up not really being the gospel. Maybe it's some sort of self-help kind of thing. But it doesn't end up being the gospel. And that's why the book of Romans is so good and important and wise. God in His amazing wisdom gives us this book called Romans. It's a book about the gospel. There's no debating that. It's about explaining the gospel in detail. It's about giving us uh, the deep riches of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And in God's perfect wisdom, we have Romans which is all about the gospel and it spends no small amount of time talking about sin talking about the just consequence of sin, talking about, yes, the wrath of God that we deserve. Because in God's perfect wisdom, He knows we won't really get the gospel, we won't really get the cross, if we don't understand that we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. Francis Schaeffer, the respected Christian thinker, in response to this very thing, after reading Romans, said this, Anyone unwilling to speak of the wrath of God does not understand the Christian faith. He's right in light of Romans. Anyone unwilling to speak about the wrath of God does not understand the Christian faith. What we want to do 
is immerse ourselves in what God says about the gospel, in Romans in particular, and today, yes, the wrath of God, so that we can better appreciate the cross of Christ, so that we can therefore understand the gospel, so that we can therefore give God the praise that He so rightfully deserves. In so many ways, the key to real worship, the key to true praise, is not emotionalism, and is not telling you about how great you are. It's about being honest with people, us being honest with ourselves, which is hearing what God says about ourselves. We're sinners. We deserve is just wrath Jesus bore the wrath in our place he's the hero and God is so good and so we worship him and we worship him forever and this is really important and I love it that we can focus on it even this morning we've got to learn about sin we've got to learn about wrath we've got to learn about it being just wrath so that we can appreciate the gospel even understand the gospel and I think like never before the days we live in are days when we need to hear about this. We need to say, yes, God is just, and and we're sinners, and we deserve His wrath, so that the cross makes sense, so that the gospel makes sense. Because we seem to work so hard, being so good at soft-selling something. We call it the gospel, and we have it so watered down, and it's so user-friendly that it doesn't even look anything like the gospel. It's no wonder unbelievers are confused by our message and they think somehow that's not relevant to me. That's, un- that's not important. Because it doesn't even make logical sense. The cross doesn't even make sense. Unless we are under the wrath of God, then it makes all the sense in the world. But this is a, this is a time we need to learn this. We need to, to, to study this. We need to emphasize this. I think like never before. David Wells, the theologian, not the athlete, is... One of my favorite writers, that's my qualifier, but he's really stuffy. And he's a tough read. But here is David Wells' attempt at being witty and using some sarcastic humor as he puts his finger on the pulse of what I'm talking about. If we are to market the church and its gospel, where are we going to start? We start, of course, with our customer. What does the customer want? The conventional wisdom is that seriousness, especially in things like sin and wrath, I might add, is the death knell of successful churches. In an age of entertainment, such as our ages in the West, we have to be funny, engaging, likable, light to succeed. So, seriousness must be banished. Preserve the taste, but cut the calories. What is the recipe seeker-sensitive strategists and pastors are following? It is their response to their perception of this changing public. And it matches the change Miller Brewing Company made from regular brew to Miller Lite when Americans became more weight conscious. If Miller can follow the changing habits of American consumers, so can our leading evangelical pastors. Regular Christianity, many now think, does not go down easy and smooth. Christianity light does. A church that is serious, that is still regular, well, what can one say? And how better to signal the change than by replacing the old-fashioned sermon with a personal chat from a bar stool, or by replacing the serious discourse from the pastor with a drama whose very format carries with it a sense of entertainment. Well, in light of Romans... We're going to set aside the strategy of Miller Lite. 
and we're just going to stick to the regular stuff. We're going to focus on that which is weighty and serious and significant, even if church marketers tell us it is the death blow to us. Because we can't forsake the gospel. We've got to talk about wrath. I need to as a pastor, you need to as a Christian, if you are one, as you communicate the gospel, or somehow it's going to be something other than the gospel. One more time, to quote Francis Schaeffer, there is no real preaching of the Christian gospel except in light of the fact that man is under the wrath of, the, wrath of God. Well, that gets us ready for Romans 1. I hope you're convinced that we need to understand the wrath of God. I've tried to offer my rationale. Hopefully it's biblical. I've offered uh, different theologians' rationale, even those who watch our culture. We've got to make sure we understand this because the worship of God is at stake, the glory of the cross is at stake, and how about out of love for our fellow mankind, for other men and women and boys and girls, we want to love them so much we're willing to talk to them about the wrath of God so that they can understand the greatness of Christ. Romans 1, 18-32 is our text. There are three universals about the wrath of God in that text. Three universals about the wrath of God that show us the goodness of the gospel. Three universals regarding the wrath of God that make the gospel, as I said last time, gospel-esque. You really want to see the gospel as good news? It's against the backdrop of the wrath of God. That's Romans 1, 18 to 32. Well, last time we looked at the first one of these universals, and I said it was this. God's wrath is universally revealed. God's wrath is universally revealed. That's in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. That's literally is being revealed, is being unleashed from heaven. So it's clearly from God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As we saw last time, he talks about the goodness of the gospel, verses 16 and 17. But having done that in the introduction, the first order of business for 64 verses, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, 64 verses is to talk to you, to talk to me, to talk to human beings, specifically here Gentiles, about what sinners we are and how we're under the wrath of God. That's why we need Christ. And so we see here, it is universally revealed. It's made clear. It's not limited. It's universal. Let's move on to a second universal. and We'll look at the second one this morning, and we won't get to the third one. The second universal about the wrath of God unpacked in Romans 1 for us to get so that we can get the cross. Number two, God's wrath is universally deserved. God's wrath is universally deserved. And that's in verses 19 to 23. God's wrath is universally deserved. Now, take that as a soundbite for a second. I just said, in somewhat of a public place, but let's just take it as a soundbite. God's wrath is universally deserved. Let me say it another way. Everyone deserves the wrath of God. Take that out of context. Take that out of context, and that's like a big shocking statement. I mean, take that in public discourse. God, everybody deserves the wrath of God. 
That's a shocker. Why is it such a shocker to us for us to hear such a thing? Well, for starters, we hear everyone is under the wrath of God. Everyone deserves to be judged by God. We hear that and we're shocked. We're shocked for starters because we, we've gotten to the point where we actually think along these lines that we're the judge and God is the accused. God would never judge anyone. I mean, that, that's our that's our role, and we decide even what God gets to do. C.S. Lewis had this figured out a number of decades ago. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said: The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, so it used to be like this. Just to insert, it used to be when someone thought about God, they thought about approaching someone who was their judge. That's how it used to be. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock, using his old English way of saying, God is the one who's on trial. Man is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, uh, he's ready to listen to him. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. God is on trial. That's how we think. That's how we think. And so when I say, based upon what the text is going to say, God's wrath, everybody deserves it. It just causes our, you know, antenna to be completely tweaked out of whack. That's not how we think. Because we're the judge, we're in charge. There's another, another reason why this is shocking to us before we actually get into the text. And it has to do with fairness. When you hear someone, just, if you're just a normal person in our culture, you hear someone say, God's wrath is deserved by everyone, or you hear someone say, you are under the wrath of God. Your tendency, your response, apart from a Christian mindset is, that's not, what? That's not fair! That's like the mantra that we just chant over and over again. Our response when we hear a great claim about God, like the wrath of God is revealed, we say, that's not fair. What's amazing is, and we don't even know this, generally speaking, as as members of our culture, we don't even know that the Bible goes out of its way, giving us all kinds of evidence that it is fair. In fact, that's what really what we're looking at this morning. God's wrath is universally deserved, verses 19, really goes back to 18, all the way to verse 23. This section we're looking at this morning, the second universal, God's wrath is universally deserved, is all about arguing for the fairness of God's wrath. And so if there's just something inside of you that wants to say, that's not fair, this text is for you. And if it's not for you because you already know this, this is a great equipping time because more than likely, most people you talk to, when you talk to them about the gospel, and I know you're going to talk about the wrath of God, otherwise it won't make sense, are thinking, that, that, that's not fair. Well, Romans 1, verses 19, or really 18 to 23, the second universal gives us a weighty, weighty amount of evidence, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So we're looking at the second universal, but really what we're doing as we focus on that, we're looking at all the unpacked rationale, the logic, the evidence of this matter of God's wrath is fair. It's just. 
It's deserved. Let's start looking at the evidence. We, we see the evidence even back in verse 18, which is what we looked at last time. Look what it says there. For the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed again, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Oh, who, who's, who's at fault here? Uh, the, the ungodly, the unrighteous, uh, they're suppressing the truth, the truth of God according to verse 25, in unrighteousness. And we talked about that last time. What a vivid image that is uh, of sinners. We, we, we suppress the truth. There's something in us that tells us there's a God and it tells us something that's true about this God. And what do we do? We don't embrace it. We, we, we hold it down. We, we get it in a spiritual stranglehold and we keep pushing the truth down. Well, Whose fault is that? Well, that's our fault. God reveals Himself. What do we do? Oh, I love you, God. I worship you as the one true God. I accept everything you've said about yourself. What do we do? We, we hold it down. So, there's some evidence that when God pours out His judgment, we're guilty. We're culpable. There's evidence right away that God's wrath is justified. Let's move on for some more evidence. The evidence that tells us sinners know enough. It's not legitimate to say, oh, I, I didn't know enough truth, God, and that's why I created a different version of you, or that's why I rejected you. I don't deserve wrath. I, I didn't know the truth. I, I'm not to blame. Well, look at verse 19. Because that which might be known, no, it says that which is known about God might be evident, no, is evident within them, or you could take it as to them or, or among them. But you see there, what happens is, God has shown us plenty. It is known about God. It is evident in them or to them or with them. God gives us the truth. It's evident to us. It's obvious. And we suppress it. This is why I say there's no such thing as an atheist. This is why when I talk to people who say, they're, they say well, I'm an atheist, I, I say, well... Eventually, I understand there's a philosophical category. I understand how that's a real category. You could fit in the category of atheist. I understand that. But I've got to tell you, based upon what the Bible says, because the Bible talks about people just like you, I say, you tell me you don't believe in God, and I just need to let you know that I don't believe in you. Typically, they've never heard that before. Probably a shame. Well, I'll say, you know, the Bible talks about people just like you because God has revealed Himself. He clearly has revealed Himself based upon Romans 1. And what do you do? Even though you know in your heart of hearts there is a God, you know something true about Him, what you're doing is suppressing the truth. You're holding it down in unrighteousness. The Bible talks about atheists. Just acknowledge there's really no such thing. And if that doesn't stir the pot enough, I say the Bible talks about you somewhere else, like in Psalm 14, and it says... The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So, can we dialogue? <laughs> Wrath from God is justified. It is fair. Because God has made Himself known. Sinners know enough. Well, there's more evidence here in this very logical section of Scripture. Sinners know enough from God. Keep reading in verse 19 and you'll see that it says there, For God made it evident... To them. To say that's not fair. Wait a minute. God, God, God has given you truth about Himself. God, God has given you a gift. He's, he Himself has made it evident to you. To say this isn't fair is a load of beans. 
Not the case at all. So much for the that's not fair comment. Well, he gives more evidence. This is something that's always been known. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, he reaches way back to the beginning. His invisible attributes, his eternal power. I like, I like those two words. It's from one Greek word. You could translate it woodenly. His alwaysness. His eternal power, his alwaysness. He's talking about his divinity and divine nature. Look what it says there in verse 20. Have been clearly seen. Since the very beginning of time as we know it, God has made Himself known, but it's not been in some unclear way. It's been clearly seen. And God has done this. There's accountability. We can know. Now we're on to another philosophical category that ultimately isn't a true one, and that's the agnostic. Somebody say, I don't believe in God. Or, no, 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 that's the atheist. I'm not sure if there's a God or not. Yes, you are. You know, since the beginning of time, God has made himself clear to the point where it says right here, it's evident. It's very clear. Verse 20, have been clearly seen. Then verse 20 goes on to say, being understood through what has been made. How can he say this? Well, because God made this amazing world and he made amazing creatures. And when you look at it, whether you're looking at the cell, uh, cell or whether you're looking at the stars or the moon, there, there's God's fingerprints on it, if you will. And there's something that's unexplainable when you look at this thing. And it's absolutely amazing. That's really what he's arguing for uh, through what has been made. Theologians call it general revelation or natural revelation. This is why Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Some people try to take Romans 1.20, the very first part, out of context and try to build a theology. It's called a natural theology that says you can look at the stars and come to salvation. But you have to take it out of context because if you keep reading, look at verse 20 where it goes on to say, so that it's, it's through, uh, been made clear, been made understood through what has been made. Verse 20, so that purpose, they are without excuse. General revelation won't save anybody. General revelation has the purpose, yes, to reveal God, but you know what it does? It shows that we're culpable, we're responsible, so that we are without excuse, so that no one can rightly say, justifiably before God, I just didn't know enough. I just didn't know any better. God's response is, without excuse. Never does the Bible teach you can be saved through general revelation. Always does the Bible teach you are proving your guiltiness as a sinner because you reject general revelation and you don't see the one true God through it. Culpability is the key word here. As one person said, natural revelation leads not to salvation but to the demonstration that God's condemnation is just. People are without excuse. That's what it says in verse 20. That's not fair. If I only knew more. See, that's ultimately accusing God of not doing a good enough job of revealing Himself. 
And Romans 1 is telling us we are all under the just condemnation of God because he's made himself known and we have not naturally, apart from his intervention, worshipped him as the one true God in response. Well, there's even more evidence of this without excuse. If you keep reading in verse 21, it gets worse. For, again, signaling the logical sequence of his argument, for even though they knew God, and they have a real knowledge. I mean, what should you do? Okay, you know God. The right response is, because he's revealed himself, is for you to, to, to respond to God as God and to, to worship him. But he goes on to say, for even though they knew God, he says, and here's the most outrageous statement in the whole text, in verse 21, they did not honor him as God. Honor, the Greek word doxadzo, where we get doxology, worship, praise. God reveals himself. We see it and we even have an understanding. Even though we're doing this, we're supposed to say, this is amazing. Look what God has made. This is absolutely amazing. God, this one true God who made all of this, I will worship him. I will give him doxology instead. We don't. And that's the rub. That's why we are justifiably, fairly, under the wrath of God. God reveals. God is kind. God is gracious. And we don't respond to Him as God. This is the offense of all offenses. Think about this. As you look at verse 21, they did not honor Him as God. They did not give Him doxology. They did not honor Him as God. Think about that. Because you're thinking about the most fundamental thing ever. You think about how God reveals himself and your right response is, my right response is to give God doxology, to give him glory. You're thinking about the most essential thing, period. Because if there's a creator and we're the creation, the natural thing to do is to glorify the one who created us. This is true on, on a human realm. If you're an artist and you paint a magnificent picture, and we look at the magnificent picture, we say, oh, an amazing artist drew this. And therefore, that picture is glorifying the artist. You hear a magnificent song uh, sung, and you hear this great, great solo, and you hear that, and that song, the creation of the singer glorifies the one who is singing it. God makes us. God uh, makes all of us through the creation, as it says, and we're part of it. The natural response of everything He has made should be the right response. The logical response is we reflect His greatness and His power and we say we worship God. We give Him weightiness. We give Him glory. We give Him doxadzo. And when we don't, if this is the most fundamental reality ever to be known when it comes to creator-creation relationship, the most high-handed, worse, the most despicable offense imaginable is for the created to not glorify the Creator. When Jesus said when he was quizzed by the religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? 
He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that, but we seldom think about how much sense that makes. God made us. What, what are we designed to do by, by the very nature that we're created beings? It is, to, it is to reflect God. It is to glorify God. It is to love God. That is what we do. That's the only right response. But we don't. They did not honor Him as God. I mean, this is, this is spiritual treason. Psalm 29, 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory. How about this? Do His name. He deserves it. It's His. And to not give it to Him should be seen by us as despicable, ugly, heinous, high-handed, spiritual rebellion by the nature of the fact that we belong to Him. It's the greatest offense ever committed. They did not honor him as God. Then he goes on to add something to it and more evidence in verse 21, or give thanks. God, according to Matthew 5, sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Every good gift comes from him. We see this in Acts 14, 17. He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And do we say, thank you, God, for giving me every good thing I've ever received? Apart from the gospel, we don't. It shows the fact that we deserve wrath. John Milton spoke of base ingratitude. William Shakespeare wrote, Blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art so unkind as man's ingratitude. One famous philosophical author wrote this, if he is not stupid, he is monstrously ungrateful, phenomenally ungrateful. In fact, I believe that the best definition of man is the ungrateful biped. And he wasn't thinking about Romans and he wasn't a Christian. His evaluation of mankind is, he's ungrateful. That's what Romans is saying. Naturally, we're ungrateful, but naturally, we're supposed to be grateful. That's because there's sin involved, and if there's sin involved against God, if there's been an insurrection, well, there's justifiable wrath. Couldn't be more logical. There's more evidence if this isn't enough. This just gets worse. Here's where it dive bombs. Look at verse 21 where it ends with saying, or it goes on to say, but they became futile in their speculations. Oh, let's think about that. Okay, God deserves glory. God deserves doxology and thanksgiving. That's just what we're supposed to do by, by nature of the fact that we're created beings. This is what He deserves. But as soon as you walk away from that, you have a bazillion options on how you want to manifest your idolatry. But if you walk away from the very thing you're made to do, glorify God and give Him thanks, you will most certainly, absolutely, without any doubt, be an idolater. Because anything you do other than this one main thing is somehow going to be idolatrous. It's rebellion. It's, it's against Him. 
Because verse 21 then gives us the argumentation. Verse 21 says, but they became futile in their speculations. I mean, once you walk away from the one true constant, it's futility. It's speculation. Now, what does this look like? What does this sound like in our culture? I'll tell you what it sounds like. You know what, you know what a futile speculation about God and about truth sounds like? I said it last time over and over again. To me, God is. Well, I like to think about God in this way. Or, you know, I just don't think we can know. I, 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 God revealed Himself. You're supposed to glorify Him. And you have become futile because you walked away from that in your speculations. To me, God is. I think God is. To me, I like to think of God in these terms. Or you know what? We just can't really know the truth about God. When you hear that, loud and clear, ringing in your ears, I hope it's Romans 1, futile speculations. Futile speculations. That's what that is. That's idolatrous, futile speculation. And that, that's the birth, the birth of human religion, really. Because this goes on and on without end. As soon as you walk away from the very thing you're supposed to do, then you just have to futilely speculate. And isn't it interesting when we say, to me, God is. I like to think of God in these terms. As I've said before, you're telling us a lot about yourself. But you're not telling us anything about God. You're giving us autobiography. You're not giving us theology. And what you're giving us ultimately is self-authority, which is in direct affront to the one true God who has revealed Himself, and you're saying, no, He hasn't. Or you're saying, He's wrong. To me, God is. God says this, but to me, God is. You know what? It's no wonder that we're under the wrath of God. Makes sense. We're at war with God, with our to me, God is phenomenon. There's no other way to look at it. Verse 21, and their foolish heart as the Bible does so often, using heart for the center of your being, the very core of who you are really as a person. And their foolish heart was darkened. Then the, this is the extreme irony. Verse 22. Professing to, be the, professing to be wise, to me God is. We can't know who God is. I like to think about God like, right? Professing to be wise because you're saying to me, to me, to me. I'm the authority, I'm the authority, I'm the authority. I like to think of God in this way. Professing to be wise. Man, you sure are smart. God says this about Himself and you say something else. You are so smart. I mean, you're smarter than God is, is what you're saying. Every time you hear someone say, to me, God is, they're professing to be wise. Oh, they're professing to be wiser than God is. You know what? It's no wonder that God's bow is pulled back and drawn. This is war. And then I love verse 22, the irony, as it goes on to say, they became fools. One translation puts it this way, they boast in their wisdom, but they have made fools of themselves. (laughs) Then verse 23 goes on to say, in the name of wisdom, right? And exchange the glory of the incorruptible 
that is the imperishable, the immortal God, for an image, an image in the form of corruptible man? Notice the contrast. Incorruptible versus corruptible. God versus man. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is as bad as trades get. I mean, this is, this is nuts. I don't even know how to come up with a comparison for ridiculous. You're going to trade in your brand spanking new 2009 Ferrari for a 1971 Ford Pinto that blows up when people hit it in the back. I mean, the car that my dad would say, you know, that wasn't a good car when they made it. And that makes that analogy look silly based upon what we're talking about. God, who, who, who made everything, who's infinitely wise, oh, oh, and he's eternal, all-powerful, and you are so smart as to suggest that's not how he is. Let me tell you how he is. One sophisticated, British-trained, you know how they always sound sophisticated, theologian commented on this in his academic book. He used a sophisticated academic word. He said, this is stupid. (laughs) He's right. This is, the, this is the most stupid thing ever imaginable to ever even come close to saying anything like, to me, God is. It's just stupid. You don't know what you're saying. But this is human religion. And idolatry is stupid. Human religion is stupid, Right? It only gets worse. This is the downward spiral in verse 23. And of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Psalm 106, 20 says, Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. God reveals Himself in creation. So we see it all and we worship Him, right? No. We look at his creation and we worship the creation. I remember I, uh, my mom used to have a little plaque and she had all these plaques and all this stuff. And, and I remember it said, um, I worship the water you walk on. She bought that out of devotion to Christ until her theologically minded son said, nice idolatrous plaque. <laughs> We worship the one who walks on the water. We don't worship the water. We worship Christ as believers. But notice the perversion. We worship birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. And I suppose in our culture, we could put some other things in there that we worship, the things we give our time to, the things we give our devotion to. Horace, the Roman poet of the first century B.C., satirized the practice when he wrote this. I was a fig tree's, fig tree's trunk, a useless log. The workman wavered, shall I make a stool or a god? He chose to make a god, and thus, God I am. Horace was smart enough to say, these people are idiots. This doesn't make any sense at all. 
question I have for you is, why do we do this? Why is it that God reveals Himself to the point where He says He reveals Himself clearly so people can understand and comprehend? Why do we then worship the stuff instead of the Creator of the stuff? Well, Romans 1 has already told us, and hopefully you're thinking, you know, it's because we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We hold it down. That's certainly true. That's the best biblical answer. That's Romans 1.18. That's why we do this, because we're sinners. And, as I tell my atheist friends when I dialogue with them, if you acknowledge that there is a God, you know that you're not perfect and you haven't loved God perfectly all of the time, you're in a lot of trouble, aren't you? There's a moral motivation in your heart of hearts for not acknowledging a God because if you do, you are busted. So it's in your best interest to keep the stranglehold and hold him down. That's the biblical answer, but just observing human behavior, not as good of an answer. Let me offer you an observation from David Wells. Why do people choose to substitute over God himself? That's a good question. Probably the most important reason is that it removes accountability to God, which is essentially what I was saying. We can meet idols on our own terms because they are our own creations. They are safe, predictable, and controllable. They are portable and completely under the user's control. They offer nothing like the threat of a God who thunders from Sinai or whose providence in this world so often appears to us to be incomprehensible and dangerous. People need face only themselves. That is the appeal of idolatry. To me, God is. You define God. Now you can control God. You know what this even happens is we mix Christianity, we mix the cross, and we say, well, this is what I choose to believe about Christ, but then I also add these other things, and I reject other things about Him. And I say, even if I never say it, but to me, Jesus is. Now we can control Jesus. And now who's God ultimately? Pat is God. I'm in charge. And even though I say I'm a Christian, even though I go to church, even though I carry a Bible with me and I read verses, if I'm not going to take God at face value and accept Jesus for who He said He was and what He did, and I'm going to take this and leave that and then add my own thing, at the end of the day, I'm just an idolater wearing the name tag that says Christian. And I deserve to be under the wrath of God. Wrath of God is just. It is fair. The business of God-making by human beings should strike us as outrageous. It does the writer of Romans. It does God. How's your self-esteem? For Christians, it's all about Christ. Because we acknowledge we're under the wrath of God and we deserve to be under the wrath of God. And then when we get to, please go there because I don't want to end on this negative side of things. Go to Romans chapter 3. After he's done with these 64 verses, I know we're not there yet, but, but let's, take a, let's take a peek. After he's done with these 64 verses about wrath and how it's fair and it's just and how non-religious people deserve wrath, religious people deserve wrath, 
quote-unquote moral people deserve wrath. Everyone is under the wrath of God. That's why Jesus comes. I love 21 and 22. But now, I'm thinking, yeah, it took a long time. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's what we so need. We need God's righteousness being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then verse 22 is so awesome. Even, especially, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all those who believe. And that's when we sing the hallelujah chorus in our hearts and say, yeah! But the only way you're going to get to that, the only way you're going to get to that and hear how you can have God's righteousness through faith in Christ, the only way you're going to get to that and say, yeah! I will give my life to this God. I will serve Him. I will boast and tell other people about His greatness. The only way that's ever going to really happen is if you go through the muck and the mire of Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3, 20. And you stare long and hard at that mirror that is so truthful and so troubling, but you come out on the other side and you hear how you could have God's righteousness that you need and how you can have it based upon the righteousness of Christ because He actually bore the wrath of God that you deserve and you start hearing this stuff and it changes everything. It's no wonder the people who really get this live for it and die for it Worship God because of it. It's great. It's called Christianity. Finally, one faithful pastor made this observation and we will close. Will God give man brains to see things? And will man then fail to exercise his will toward that God? The sorrowful answer is that both of these things are true. God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive those nails through it and place him on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men are without excuse. And God, we are very thankful today that Jesus Christ came here from his eternal throne in glory knowing full well what he was to do and what would happen to him. And even as we read earlier in Romans chapter 5, we read about how we're not under the wrath of God. We know we're not under the wrath of God because when Jesus came, he experienced your wrath, the wrath that was intended for us. Because he loves us. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, make us, help us 
to understand the gravity of our sin like we've never understood it before. Help us to grapple with these weighty issues of justice and fairness against the backdrop of your righteousness and our sin so that we might truly, genuinely understand the gospel, the good news that is truly good news, that we might understand the perfect work of Christ so that we might worship Him and exalt Him knowing all along we understand these things if we do, not because we're smart, not because we're wise or better than others. It's because you've been so gracious and kind as to help us to understand these things. While we deserve to be under your wrath, we are not through faith in your Son, and it all comes from you. What a great, great Savior, a mighty Savior Jesus is. And when we know these things for ourselves... May we be characterized by people who love others enough and care for others enough as Jesus did to open our mouths and speak to them about how Jesus did not come for spiritually healthy people. He came for sinners. May we have such compassionate hearts as Jesus did to speak such things that are true. In His name I pray, amen.